Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's edition, we're looking once again at the threat of war over Ukraine and the crisis in relations between Russia and the West. But this time, we're getting a view from Moscow. My guest is Dmitry Trenin. He's director of a think tank, the Carnegie Moscow Center. Before becoming an academic in 1993, he served for more than 20 years in the armed forces of the Soviet Union and then Russia. He's somebody who's thought a lot about the connections between military might and foreign policy. So what are Russia's real aims in this crisis? And how likely is war? One of the unusual things about this crisis is how open the United States and its allies have been in discussing the build-up of Russian forces along Ukraine's border and the threat of a Russian invasion. It's sometimes felt as if diplomacy is being conducted in public. Here's US President Joe Biden suggesting that it's more likely than not that President Vladimir Putin of Russia will make a military move on Ukraine. I'm not so sure he has uh, is certain what he's going to do. My guess is he will move in. He has to do something. And by the way, I've indicated to him the two things he said to me that he wants, guarantees them. One is Ukraine will never be part of NATO. And two, that NATO or the there will not be strategic weapons stationed in Ukraine. But we can work out something on the second piece, pretending what he does along the Russian line as well, the Russian border in the European area of Russia. On the first piece, we have a number of treaties internationally and in Europe that suggest that you get to choose who you want to be with. But the likelihood that Ukraine is going to join NATO in the near term is not very likely based on much more work they have to do in terms of democracy and a few other things going on there, and whether or not the major allies in the West would vote to bring Ukraine in right now. So there's room to work if he wants to do that. So I started my conversation with Dmitry Trenin by asking him about Biden's assessment. The Americans think a war's coming, but is that how things feel in Moscow? No, it doesn't. I was actually surprised by that statement. I think Biden was certainly looking at some intelligence reports. But when you sit in Moscow, the only likely scenario for a military flare-up seems to be an attempt by Ukraine to gain territory in Donbass or to provoke the Russians into doing something larger than usual in the Donbass area. You don't get the impression that Russia is getting ready for a massive offensive against Ukraine. So how do you account for the move of, you know, what is said to be 100,000 plus troops up to the Ukrainian border? Well, 100,000 troops is not such a huge force with regard to a country like Ukraine. It's a country which is largest in Europe after Russia. And that number has not been increasing 
since late last year. So the buildup all happened in the autumn and early winter of 2021. So there's been nothing in terms of, at least as Western intelligence reports to the outside world, because I haven't seen any public, I don't think that there are any public Russian announcements as to how many troops Russia has concentrated in that area. So I think it's a pressure instrument in the hands of President Putin, who is now using military means for demonstration purposes at this point, but uh, ready to move in if ordered as leverage with regard to the United States and the rest of the West. So you talk about the Russian view being that the only thing that could spark actual fighting is a Ukrainian provocation. On the other hand, as you say, Putin is clearly using a buildup of forces for leverage to try to advance his particular demands about Ukraine not joining NATO and now about, indeed, the withdrawal of uh, NATO troops from Romania and Bulgaria and so on. Where did this crisis come from? Because again, in London, maybe in Washington, people really weren't paying attention to this issue over the summer, seemed to have been taken by surprise by it. Did you see this coming a long way out, sitting in Moscow? Well, I think this present crisis all started in early 21, in March and April, uh, the first time that Russia concentrated a sizable amount of forces around Ukraine recently. But if you take a longer view, this crisis has been accumulating over the past couple of decades. Because if you sit in the Kremlin or in the general staff in Moscow, the analysis that you have of Russia's geopolitical, geostrategic situation facing Europe is that over the last 25 years, NATO has been marching all the way to the Russian border. And you have NATO forces in Estonia to us drive from St. Petersburg. If uh, NATO honors its promise to Ukraine, you might have NATO forces very close to Moscow in Ukraine. And um, the developments in Belarus are seen by the Kremlin as having been, well, at least supported by uh, the people in um, neighboring Western countries. So if you're Vladimir Putin, who has been in power for the last 20 plus years, you will know that four out of five waves of NATO enlargement or expansion in Europe have happened on his watch. And as a result, European security, which previously had been placed on uh, the platform, if you like, of uh, U.S.-Soviet confrontation and Helsinki, it was Yalta, Helsinki, was all about, let's say, a two-pillar foundation of European security. After 1991 and 1989, Europe's security has been essentially dominated by the United States, with NATO being its chief instrument. Now, Putin's objective, I think, is to change that. He wants to replace the NATO-centric, U.S.-dominated system of European security with an architecture which, again, will be resting on two pillars, one being the West and the other being Russia. And the two will be in some sort of an agreement, some sort of an arrangement about which side is responsible for what and which side is obligated to do what and cannot do what with regard to the other side. That's the plan, I think. 
Do you think the plan seems to be having any chance of making progress at the moment? I mean, although the mood has been pretty grim in the last few weeks, I thought the tone after the uh, meeting between Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, and Tony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, was relatively positive. Uh, The Americans saying they would come back with some proposals. So sitting in Moscow, do you think they think that there is still room for diplomacy, or do they think that window's narrowing? Uh, I don't think that they think in those terms. We have uh, a situation which should be analyzed at different levels. At the level of diplomacy, as you said, there is dialogue. And this is uh, not a small thing if you look at things from Moscow. The West has not been engaged in a dialogue with Russia on European security issues since the days of Gorbachev. After that, the West did not need a partner to do things that it wanted to do. It didn't have to consult anyone, and the slogan of the West during that period, which I think still continues, is that no one has any veto on our decisions. And now people talk about Russian demands, proposals as being maximalist, as being too much as being something that the other side will never agree to. But uh, at the same time, they're talking. And uh, one takeaway from the Blinken-Lavrov meeting in Geneva was that Blinken has uh, confirmed that he will be sending American written responses point by point to the Russian proposals presented at the end of last year. Well, this is a tactical gain, but it's a gain. This is one thing. Another thing is that there is this military situation, which I think has been more or less stable. It's certainly a a matter of concern, and it's actually designed to be a matter of concern. Putin, when speaking to Russian diplomats at the end of last year, said there's tension on the Western side, and that's not a bad thing. So basically, as I said before, it's all about leveraging the West to move in the direction of at least considering Russian security needs, Russian security demands. And then there's at yet another level, this information environment. And it's interesting, you look at the West, awash in the talk of an imminent war in Ukraine. And now this includes the president of the United States, of all people. And uh, people have been setting deadlines for the start of hostilities. People have been coming up with all sorts of scenarios. In Russia, all these things are, I'm talking about Western assessments or Western projections. All these things are available on television in spades. They are discussing all those Western reports about what Russia is doing, what Putin is up to and all that. But if you look around, things continue to work more or less as before, as if nothing were happening. It's interesting that Ukraine is closer to Russia in that sense, at least the population, the bulk of the population of Ukraine. They're a bit relaxed about the prospect of a war. So you live in very different environments. And then you're asking questions, why this is so, and who is playing what sort of game? I think Putin's game is... uh, to me at least, clear in terms of its objectives, in terms of its instruments. I do not think that a large-scale invasion of Ukraine unprovoked, this is an important caveat, is something that Russia is planning. If there's a provocation, I think uh, they will think very hard about how to respond to that. 
a major provocation will probably provoke a massive response. But uh, Putin doesn't have to be told by Blinken about the underside of uh, a major military operation in Ukraine. I think he knows these things so much better than uh, even Western intelligence. You paint Russia's concerns as very clearly focused on security, on this sense that NATO is getting a bit too close for comfort and so on. Yet it also seems to me, albeit from a distance, that there's a strong emotional side to it. I mean, you read the essay that Putin published over the summer about Ukraine. A lot of it is a sort of creed occur saying more or less that Ukrainian independence is unnatural, that Ukraine and Russia are as one, that there's a sort of expressions of love for Ukraine, but also that this is a country that's been infiltrated by neo-Nazis and so on. How much is that emotional nationalistic side driving some of this? Well, I think it's certainly true to say that uh, for Putin and for many Russians, Ukraine continues to be part of um, historical Russian state. I don't think that the idea today is to integrate Ukraine into a new edition of the Russian state, of, of an expanded Russian state. But certainly the idea is to, over time, help Ukraine be different from what it is today. What they want, I think, is a Ukraine at least nominally neutral between Russia and NATO. I think that's the end game in this current diplomatic military standoff between Russia and the United States slash the West. But if Ukraine stays outside NATO, if it's not, let's say, re-educated, quote-unquote, reformatted to fit the Western pattern, then there remains a chance that Ukraine might be, in the future, a country that would be much friendlier to Russia than today. And I think that certainly any Russian leader would want to have some sort of leverage, some sort of influence in a country so close to Russia and so important to Russia as Ukraine. But having said all that, I don't think that the way to resolve the Ukraine problem for Russia is to invade it, occupy it, and integrate it within the rest of the Russian Federation. I don't think uh, that serious people believe that this is possible or this is the way to go. There are some people who think that way, but I, I would say that they are still on the margins. Yeah, I mean, do you feel that perhaps, if that is Russia's long-term goal, that threatening them with invasion or appearing to threaten them with invasion will long-term be counterproductive? I mean, I realize at times of national crisis, there's a slight pressure to show unity and so on. But looking back a few months ago, you wrote an article for Foreign Affairs, didn't you, where you were questioning whether this was the right strategy. I mean, I think you said, you know, there are ways of building bridges with Ukraine through business, through culture, through education that aren't quite as militarized as what they're doing now. Well, I still stand by those words. Again, there's a difference clearly between, let's say, my analysis of the Kremlin's policy toward Ukraine and my own thinking about uh, the best way of dealing with Ukraine from the Russian perspective. But I think that the current buildup, unlike the picture that's painted in the West, is not so much directed at Ukraine. I think it's directed at the U.S. There's only one partner for Russia or one counterpart for Russia, 
in the matters of European security. And that counterpart does not sit in Europe. He sits in the United States of America. So to get the attention of the U.S., you have to demonstrate your capability and your resolve. This is something that Putin is doing. Otherwise, the United States will ignore you. I think Putin has reached his conclusion some time ago that words only, that uh, arguments only won't move the United States one inch. Americans only understand the language of force, Putin believes. And uh, he is talking with them using that particular language. So it's not about Ukraine. Ukraine sits at the center of the problem, but the problem is bigger. The problem is the U.S. for Russia. Now, you said that Putin's view is that the U.S. only understands the language of force. You'll hear many in the West saying the same about Putin. Now, it's made clear, the Americans have made clear, they're not going to intervene militarily to defend Ukraine. They are, however, talking about massive sanctions. How concerned do you think Russia is by those threats? How far have they been able to prepare for that eventuality? Well, I think that they're very concerned. I think that they're treating it very seriously, because if that happens, as Putin said, uh, that will lead to a complete break of relations, whatever that may mean, and it may mean a lot. I think that they are engaged in contingency planning in all spheres, starting with finance and economics and many other spheres. So they're taking it seriously. Whether they believe it's uh, more likely or less likely is another thing, because, again, it's my conviction that the scenario that is painted most often in the Western media, i.e. of a massive Russian onslaught to Ukraine to subjugate that former Soviet republic, is not the scenario that Putin is prepared to exercise or is willing to exercise. This is necessarily speculation because obviously the Kremlin are going to be airing their internal debates. But how far do you think they've gamed this out? And how much do you think there continues to be discussion within Putin's inner circle and his advisors about what needs to be done? I suppose I'm asking, are there different schools of thought in the West? We know there are hawks and doves in Washington. Are there hawks and doves in Moscow? No. Moscow is no longer ruled by uh, the Politburo. In the Politburo, you did have nuances of opinion, sometimes uh, differences, but very seldom. Putin is a pre-communist leader in that sense. He is a czar. The Security Council of the Russian Federation, which is sometimes called a new Politburo, is more like king and council. So these notables may advise the president, but they don't have a vote. The president may invite them to express their views, and he gets those views. But uh, the most important decisions, certainly the decisions about war and peace, are taken by the president himself on the basis of various analyses that he gets from the people around him, particularly from the intelligence community. But he is taking those decisions single-handedly. That was the case in Ukraine in 2014. That, I think, is the case now. All other people are executing the president's will. And I don't think that there's a basic difference in opinions at that level. If you have uh, serious differences with the president, then uh, you better quit. And uh, no one is quitting at this point. So a lot, a huge amount, depends on Putin's judgment, given the structure of that system. 
you alluded earlier to how Russia would respond to sanctions and Putin saying at that point we're in all-out confrontation. So let me end with the, you know, the biggest question of them all. I don't think either Russia or the United States wants a war with the other or is planning for a war with the other. Maybe they're planning in, in the abstract sense. But do you think there is a risk that this current confrontation escalates so that it's not just a conflict in Ukraine, but actually a war between NATO and Russia? Well, I think that the situation is serious. And um, I think we should be very careful on both sides. Also careful with predictions, careful with uh, signals, because signals can sometimes be misread and misinterpreted. At this point, I fully agree with you, not the United States, not Russia, wants a conflict, even in Ukraine, forget a wider conflict. I think that the United States is also making sure that no one on the Ukrainian side does something stupid to provoke the Russians a little bit too much. And I'm sure that everyone in the Donetsk region who are leaning toward Russia, I don't think anyone will step out of line. So it's a war of nerves, clearly, which is an integral part of this complex crisis, essentially about European security, with military playing a role of a pressure instrument. And the diplomats will eventually, I think, uh, find a way to some sort of an accord, maybe partial accord, uh, not resolving the entire issue. I may be engaged in wishful thinking now, but this may be the first time that uh, the United States and Russia will have reached some sort of an understanding about some elements of European security, which will make that security not an unconditional prerogative or privilege of the West, but will have to take Russian considerations, Russian views, Russian interests, Russian needs into account. Maybe not to the extent that Mr. Putin wishes, but I think the scales will tip a little bit in that direction, and that could be a way out of this crisis. That was Dmitry Trenin in Moscow, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for joining me, and I hope you'll be able to listen again next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., 